Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program with a study from Tongdi Hospital, published in Frontiers in Nutrition, and it reveals that the greater the antioxidant intake, it's linked with a lower risk of glycoma. And that's important because that means that glass of orange juice or grapefruit juice, uh, grapes, uh, all are terrific. Your berries, all rich in antioxidants, or supplementing with alpha lipoic acid and vitamin C and vitamin E, coenzyme Q10. These are your antioxidants that trap free radicals, and the more free radicals you trap, and the more loops around the body that vitamin E and vitamin C do, the more free radicals are eliminated, and therefore the less damage to your cell. The less damage to your cell, the less inflammation, the less swelling, the less, let's say, the less injury that causes you to age prematurely. And one of the ways that we age prematurely is with glycoma and cataracts. And a lot of that could be prevented if we had more antioxidants. Therefore, that ORAC factor, the natural forms of vitamin C, vitamin A, beta carotene, magnesium, selenium, zinc, these are all important. These are antioxidant-dense nutrients. But I don't know anything that would be better than a fresh glass of fresh-made orange juice in the morning. You'd be getting about five oranges, and the juice of that would be about ten times now what we know your body's benefiting from as far as an antioxidant capacity versus just a year ago. So for decades, we've been under-calculating the benefit of orange juice. So now another study, this is from the University of Tokuba in Japan, shows that natto consumption inhibits arterial sclerosis by altering your gut microflora or the microbiome or the good gut bacteria. And therefore, it suppresses inflammation. Now, natto is N-A-T-T-O. And natto is widely recognized for inhibiting arterial sclerosis, yet its underlying mechanism remains elusive. Researchers led by the university published an article in Scientific Reports showed that when you consume natto, it induces changes in the intestinal microflora, suppressing inflammation and preventing arterial sclerosis, a major killer. Why? Well, it may be because it's very rich in vitamin K2 that has shown promise in mitigating cardiovascular diseases by enhancing arterial flexibility and modulating inflammatory responses. However, the way natto suppresses arteriosclerosis has remained a question. Now they found out ways that this can work based upon your gut bacteria. Once again, just another thousands of studies that show healthy, clean foods and beverages, prebiotic and probiotic, and even this week I mentioned that now fruit and vegetable intake also creates good healthy gut bacteria. So for those of you who've been juicing your fruits and vegetables or having smoothies, good for you. For those of you who are eating lots of salads and greens and fruits, better. Because all that means you're going to have a healthier gut. And with a healthier gut, is so important. And, uh, and it's rich in a lot of these natural fermented foods like natto. I don't happen to like the taste of natto. I try to 
forget it's like tasting oil, but they develop a taste in in uh, Japan, and so it's a commonly consumed product there. So the healthier gut, the less cytokines, the less uh, kinokines, which are associated with arteriosclerosis, and those are inflammatory agents. comes down to this. Let's make it really simple. And remember what I've suggested on many occasions? Never confuse the complexity of a problem with the simplicity of a solution. And yet, sometimes, we absolutely are exasperated by the idea that something that simple couldn't resolve such complicated issues. And the answer is yes, it can, both in prevention and treatment of disease. And uh, oh, I always take vitamin K2 and K1 and K3 with vitamin D, greater synergy. And it all works together to have a healthy gut. The natural hygienists in the 19th century had it right. Dr. Kellogg at his healing farm up in Battle Creek, Michigan, he was the first doctor I'm aware of in the United States who had what today we would call a complementary approach to medicine. And uh, you go back, and I've read his books, I've read his articles, and then the person motivated by him was Bernard McFadden. And Bernard McFadden was the most popular health enthusiast in America, and he was widely read because he was the second largest publisher behind uh, William Randolph Hearst. And he published all these health gazettes and advocated, you know, advocated exercising. Kellogg advocated exercising outside in the wintertime. He advocated water therapy. He advocated um, a low, low dose electricity to stimulate muscles. I mean, that's popular now. So he was way ahead of his time, but he was considered eccentric and and so he wasn't taken seriously. But Bernard McFadden was taken seriously. In fact, uh, one day in 1975 at WMCA, a woman comes in, and she's sitting in the engineering booth. I didn't know who she was, but what I was noticing when I was looking at her, she had these really blue eyes. I mean, strong blue, um, and uh, just such a beautiful complexion. And after the show, she came over and she says, my name's Johnny Lee McFadden. I'm the wife of uh, Bernard McFadden. And I wanted to give you a gift. First edition signed by him back in the 19-teens of his books. And I still have those. I don't know what they're worth, but I read them all. And I think I had 12 copies. And, And she said he died in his 80s when he skydived and then they took him in the hospital to see how well he you know did that and someone in the hospital gave him a shot and he uh, he had an anaphylactic shock and he died but uh she said had it not been for that he was he had the energy of an 18 year old she would later take me upstate about six months later with some of her friends and along the way she stopped off at a home up in uh, near livingston manor about two hours or so up north of New York in the Catskills. And she showed me this place that was kind of run down, but it was their original health retreat. And they had them all over the United States where people would go. And the very things I'm doing now with people and have, 
they were drawing back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And that was healthy vegetarian diet, juicing throughout the day, lots of fermented foods. In the wintertime, they would go from a hot sauna out into the snow and then back in. And they knew that the Japanese, the Swedes, and, and uh, the Norwegians, a lot of people did this. And we now have the science that was very beneficial for stimulating circulation. Anyhow, she showed me all this. But the interesting part was coming back, she stopped at a place not too far from there, and there was this older woman. I'm guessing she was in her 70s or 80s. I was in my 20s. And she said, uh, all over the, the woman had a small house, but the entire house had all these slides and all these papers. And she was the personal assistant and helped run the lab for Wilhelm Reif of the Reif microscope. And back, way back, Reif, an orthodox scientist, had discovered that by being able to manipulate light waves that you could fracture cancer cells and therefore have them go through a process of programmed cell death, apoptosis. So, she says, Johnny Lee says, you're the new Bernard McFadden and I want you to see this because no one has seen this. I've hidden this because he was afraid to get in the wrong hands and be destroyed because it was a non-toxic approach to cancer. And by the way, he was publishing articles and books on this and then they finally attacked him, burned down his laboratory. And uh, so this is the person who took all of that research and she said, and I didn't know what they were talking about. I hadn't read about him yet. And, uh, but I went back up when I finally found out who he was. And I found out that he was this genius back, way back, and he was using this. And I found out in an odd way. Uh, one day, a guy shows up at the Institute of Applied Biology, where I was a, a scientist, and he said, are you, are you, I hear that you're willing to allow scientists who have other ideas uh, other than what might be currently accepted in science. And he said, I'm from UCLA, I'm a professor, I won't mention his name or what he did. And I believe I have broken the code of what Wilhelm Reif's microscope should be in order to work. Because a lot of people had tried and failed. And I said, sure. So for the next three months, he was there every day working. He didn't do it. But then I said to him, you know something interesting? I met his assistant, the nurse who ran his office, and all of his slides. He says, oh, my God. He said, we've got to go there. And I said, fine. We drove up, and she was gone. The place was empty. Couldn't find her. And, uh, and tried. Not even Johnny Lee McFadden knew where she went. Anyhow, today... There's only one person, believe it or not, who's actually broken the code. I met him, and uh, I work with him. And uh, he worked for NASA for a long time, and he, he's, a, just a, he's a genius. And uh, he had light therapy, and by modulating hundreds of thousands of different codes, he could shatter cancer, he could heal pain, one day I'll have him on the program. He's out in San Francisco. And, uh, and when he's ready to go public, I'll bring him on. And let him, he's afraid. <laughs> he's, he's a pragmatist. He's a Gary. 
once orthodox medicine knows what is possible and what I've achieved, and I can validate it, I've seen it, I brought people to him that nothing could work, and in just a few sessions of 20 minutes, he was with light therapy, he was able to reverse it. A lot of people claim this, but I haven't seen the results that they claim being being born for, uh, brought forward. In any case, that's just a little sidebar of something from my background, but more on my background that you'll find interesting in the body of our program later today. In any case, what's the takeaway message? The takeaway message is that pay attention to what you eat. And you may think, well, why is that important? I eat okay. Well, almost everyone that I've ever interviewed has said, I have a good diet. Then I ask, by what standard, when they tell me what they've eaten and consumed? It's not good. Maybe it's an average American, but not a health-providing diet. Again, I'm going to deal with more of that in the body of our main program. A new study from a Lawson Health Research Institute in Canada published in Microbiome says that on the connection between the microbiome, once again, your good bacteria, and kidney stones, a new study from Lawson Health Research Institute and Western University published in the journal have found changes in the microbiome in multiple locations in the body are linked to the formation of kidney stones, hence Bad food, bad bacteria, bad beverages like alcohol and sugar drinks and and caffeinated drinks, bad bacteria, hence more susceptible to kidney stones. But just the opposite is also true. Not to form these calcium oxalates, and by the way, vitamin C actually helps dissolve them. It doesn't cause them. They found that healthy foods create healthy bacteria, and, uh, and there's a way of breaking down the oxalate it's a bacterium called oxalobacter, uh, forming genes, genes. And uh, that's O-X-A-L-O-B-A-C-T-E-R-F-O-R-M-I-G-E-N-E-S. And that comes from healthy fermented food. Once again, good bacteria, good immune system, and reduced kidney stones. And finally, from the University of Basel, which is in Switzerland, published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. It shows that acidity regulator for bone health benefits, meaning the potassium citrate, commonly used to regulate the acidity of food and drink products, could also help boost bone health, and that's according to this study. Yeah. So, one more thing uh, that this a tripotassium citrate can help to boost bone mineral density and, and micro-architectural structure of the bones, especially in older adults. Just one more good thing to talk about. Oh, and by the way, a common pain medication fuels cancer growth, University of Chicago. Now, we know that painkillers, known as opiates, are widely used to treat both acute and chronic pain, and morphine in particular is often used to treat pain experienced by cancer patients. But now comes evidence from two studies that strongly indicate opiate-based painkillers actually fuel the growth and spread of malignancies. This was uh, at a joint meeting and of the American Association for Cancer Research and the National Cancer Institute. 
and the European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer. They all um, have shown now that opiate drugs are cancer promoters. Wow. So when you're taking a painkiller like an opiate, you're actually, quote, you are increasing cell proliferation, invasion, and migration. So just letting you know, this is one more thing that we have to deal with when it comes to iatrogenesis or medically induced disease or death. That's it on health and nutrition. And by the way, I'll try to bring out from my archive all of those Bernard McFadden, and I'm going to get a volunteer from the audience who likes to read, go through them, and highlight all the stuff that he was saying in the 19-teens that has now been proven by state-of-the-art science today. Once again, just like Dr. Kellogg on, and a man named Graham that the Graham Cracker was uh, based on, and he used, to, he used to advocate fresh juices in the 1800s. How? By, uh, by presses, meaning you, you put in your carrots and celery, whatever you were going to juice, and then you pump it down with your foot, and these steel plates come down and squeeze out the juice. So they were juicing way back then. Well, we'll be back in a moment with a lot more good information. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Today's program will try to tie together the different ways that those in power have used certain agencies of government or their power as lawmakers to obfuscate, to hide the truth from the American public. And our main theme will be in just a few moments. But here's what we're doing. We're showing that those in power have used social media in order to condemn anyone who challenges anything. If you challenge, for example, global warming, you're attacked. And if you challenge COVID or vaccines in general, or specific vaccine like uh, the Gardasil vaccine, you're attacked. Look at what they did to the doctors, all board certified, both medical doctors and scientists. In fact, two of them are the most cited medical doctors in American history, in their fields. And yet, these people were at the top, the apex of the entire medical industrial complex, until the day that they said, why aren't we treating patients who are positive for COVID immediately with the drugs we know we have that can make a difference? And they were told, stand down. No, wait. Wait, and we'll give you a drug. And it became remdesivir, one of the most toxic drugs in history, like thalidomide. And we'll give you the vaccine. And the doctor said, why should we wait? We don't know when there's going to be a vaccine. We don't know if it's going to be safe and effective. So we're going to treat them now. And for treating them and helping them save their lives 
And in one case, 10,000 patients, not one treated early with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, zinc, died. In fact, most overcame their infection and were now having natural immunity, which itself was attacked, which is completely unscientific. In any case, social media, Facebook, Google, Wikipedia, uh, all of these were used to only promote the official version. But science should always be open to debate and dialogue and exchange of ideas. It wasn't. Then that was part one. Please keep in mind we're going to do two parts. Part one is showing you how they censored some of the best and brightest, most honest voices in medicine, in science, in environmental science, in journalism, how they censored free speech advocates, and how those who claimed to to promote and protect free speech actually were the book burners. They were the mob. And how did they get away with it? Because they controlled the media. So if you control the truth and only allow your truth, official truth, corporate truth, financial truth, monopoly truth, trust truth, then what about it? someone else, these people? Then you pillar them, you attack them, you cancel them, you gaslight them on, like the New York Times front page with Dr. Robert Malone. So, we have to understand how everything from every direction is being controlled by the same forces and how they unleash the FBI, the CIA, Homeland Security, uh, the Department of Justice on the people they want to see destroyed, the Internal Revenue Service. And how are we going to do this? I'm going to put all this together for you now. First, we're going to start with Josh Hawley uh, and watch how he excoriates what is being done and brings the truth on this. And then from there, we're going to go directly into Ron Johnson, challenging director of the FBI about corruption within the FBI and not being open and going after non-enemies of the state and protecting real enemies of the state. And then Jim Jordan exposes Anthony Fauci's top witness, the person that would go forward with that smile, nice personality, and probably a good medical doctor. And Dr. Lewinsky, but she was the head of the CDC. So when she was saying things that then convinced media personalities and other media that it was safe to take the vaccine, it was effective, and it wouldn't hurt anyone. And then watch what happens when she's grilled by someone who has the facts. Social media protected her and challenged and tried to destroy anyone who challenged her. So once again, you're getting lies that are hidden and truths that are denied and false information that is promoted. Perfect storm for propagandizing people into believing the wrong information all coming from the same groups of people. So guess who protects the World Economic Forum, who's never done an expose on Klaus Schwab? Well, all the major media and the social media platforms. They promote it. And guess who wants to have the World Health Organization, a completely criminal organization, be the only one by treaty to determine everybody should get a vaccine, and here's the vaccines you should get, and here's the medicines you should take. It's no longer your personal privilege or your doctor's privilege or the state, uh, let's say the state 
top authorities, health authorities, to dictate. They will dictate. And Bill Gates, through them, will dictate. Is that what you want? Social media protects them and attacks anyone that questions them. See how it's all coming together. And after these three clips, we'll go to a break and then back. And by the way, we'll open our phones. If you have any comments or questions or interests or concerns, call us at 888-874-4888. Now to the clip, starting with Josh Hawley. We now know, thanks to the case Missouri versus Biden, that that's exactly what this administration, from the White House to the FBI to the State Department to the CDC to CISA, have all been meeting with the social media companies for years now, giving them direct commands about what to censor and take down, naming specific accounts and specific speech they want suppressed, threatening the social media platforms if they don't do it. And remarkably, and I'm quoting the court here, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and there's a huge evidentiary record. Everybody go, don't take my word for it. Go read the record. It's all on the record from the district court. What the Fifth Circuit said is, remarkably, the social media platforms all complied. All of them. They all agreed to be tools of the United States government and to censor what they were ordered to censor, to suppress the speech they were ordered to suppress. You're a journalist. Tell us about the threat to the First Amendment. And by the way, just for the record, I think it's important to establish, the Federal Court of Appeals said directly, in no uncertain terms, this was a clear violation of the United States Constitution. The First Amendment does not allow the federal government to use private companies to censor when they wouldn't be able to do it themselves. And that's exactly what this administration has done. Director Ray, have you read the Michael Sussman indictment? Uh, I've had a chance to glance at it, but I haven't had time yet uh, to read through it. I I would suggest you and everybody else read that because it really does lay out exactly what happened to create this political turmoil for two or three, four years, really, during the Trump administration. Uh, it lays out how the Hillary Clinton campaign paid for, uh, through Michael Sussman, uh, completely false allegations that uh, Trump uh, was cooperating with the uh, Alpha Bank, uh, planted that story, had an audience with James Beck, Baker FBI so that the FBI would open up an investigation uh, so that they could report that news. Same exact uh, dyna- dynamic in terms of the false steel dossier that also was contained Russian disinformation, which the FBI knew about is certainly is no later than uh, January 2017. Uh, you worked at the Justice Department, as did Michael Sussman. Did you, did you know Michael Sussman? Uh, to my knowledge, I've never met the man. But do you know, you, did you know him by reputation? Uh, not particularly. No. Okay. What do you think uh, James Baker knew Michael Sussman? I really can't speak to whom James okay. Baker knew. Do, do you think it's credible that James Bacon, James Comey, uh, J- uh, Andrew McCabe, Lisa Strzok, P- Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, these individuals had no idea who Michael Sussman was and who his clients might be? Uh, Senator, I certainly understand why you're asking the question. G- but good. Given G- that, but if I could just finish, given that this is a, an ongoing criminal case being brought by the special counsel with whom we are actively cooperating. Okay. I want to make sure that's, I don't... That's fine. I won't get an answer, yeah. but let me just make the, the final point here. So either the FBI was completely clueless or corrupt, but they didn't check into whether Michael Sussman might have been working for the Hillary Clinton campaign before they opened up the investigation to lead to the press, which put this nation through three, four years of political turmoil. 
There needs to be a political accountability, and I hope John Durham has a whole lot more that he's going to be revealing because I got virtually nothing out of you based on subpoenas. Um, in, I mean, it was interesting listening to uh, your exchange with uh, uh, Senator Paul. Uh, you said it was unacceptable what happened. That, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. But you were confirmed in August of uh, 2017. In February 2018, the Senate Intel Committee was briefed by Bill Priestap, and the bottom line of that is Bill Priestap of the FBI continued to say the Steele dossier was credible, even though the FBI knew in, the, in January 2017 that it contained Russian disinformation. Now, that was under your watch. Do you have an explanation on that? Senator, as I said, we've been working very closely with Special Counsel Durham, and I want to be careful not to start okay. talking about things that may be with Okay, that, that's fine. So another non-response. Um, in February 2020, senior Democrats produced a false intelligence product, had it classified, leaked it to the press, accusing Senator Grassley and I of uh, soliciting Russian disinformation, disseminating it. Completely false. But I can't tell you how many news stories were written about that. Fast forward to August of 2020. By the way, I held a hearing on Russian disinformation as part of my Foreign Relations Committee uh, responsibilities in 2015. I'm well aware of the problem of Russian disinformation. So I didn't need a briefing that the FBI requested to give me. So I, I didn't ask for this briefing in August 2020. When I went to the briefing, there was absolutely no relevant information. It was a completely BS hearing. And I asked the briefers, who directed you to give me that briefing? And all they could say, well, it was interagency. Well, you know, there are people in the interagencies. Um, I wrote an, a letter immediately asking, first of all, what was the, what was the, the backing, backup material for the briefing? I asked who directed it. Um, I knew it was a setup. I knew it would be used just like the, the false Intel product was used previously. So I wasn't happy. And of course, then lo and behold, in late April, early May, it was leaked. That briefing was leaked to the Washington Post, again, accusing me of you know, disseminating Russian disinformation. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's false. So I got a number of questions which remain unanswered. I sent you a similar letter. What backed up the August briefing? Who directed that briefing? To this day, I have gotten no response. Now, how, how is it so difficult to respond? By the way, Senator Grassley, former president pro tem of the Senate, former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is asking the same questions. Why is it that we can't meet with you? Why is it that you will not provide us that basic information of who directed a briefing to two U.S. senators that was then leaked for political purposes used against us, false. Why won't you answer that very basic question? So, Senator, uh, I want to be a little bit careful of what I can say. Oh, I can imagine you want to be careful, yeah. Yep, go ahead. I want to be a little bit careful about what I can say in this kind of setting uh, about getting into specifics. I understand this is an important topic to you. Before we deliver a defensive briefing like the one that you're describing here, we follow a standard defined process that involves interagency discussion, deliberative process to figure out whether a defensive briefing is even warranted. Just to take a step back though, because it's important, the entire purpose of defensive briefings to an individual 
I now recognize Mr. Jordan from Ohio for Thank you, minutes. Mr. Chairman. Doctor, why did you and the Biden administration mislead the American people? Um, you'd have to say more. I wouldn't claim March that March 29, 2021, vaccinated people do not carry the virus. Vaccinated people don't get sick. We got that information from clinical trials, but also real-world data. Seems to me there are a number of statements you make in there that aren't accurate. Um, do vaccinated people carry the virus? In March of 2021, um, the vast majority of data demonstrated that the vast majority of people were not getting infected if they were vaccinated. That's not what you said. You didn't say the vast majority of people. You said vaccinated people do not carry the virus. Was that accurate? Uh, it was generally accurate. Generally accurate. Why not just be accurate? Why not just tell the American people the truth? Why didn't say? Why didn't you say to the American people just what you said to me? We're big boys and girls. We pay your salary. The government is supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people. Why not just tell us the truth? Uh, I was speaking. Was six weeks later when you said if you were to get infected during post-vaccination, you can't give it to anyone else. Was that accurate? Uh, what was the date of that? May 19, 2021. Um, at the time, we had the Wuhan strain and then the Alpha strain. That was the Alpha strain that was circulating. That was generally true. Yeah. Generally true again? Why not again? Why not tell the American people this is generally true? Um, I couldn't tell you the exact data on the vaccine effectiveness of symptomatic disease and severe disease at the time. What I can tell you is that we generally saw that if you were to get infected after you had been vaccinated, that you were not carrying the virus by transmitting it to somebody else. You could not transmit it to others. But we know that's not accurate. It was at the time. Now, what really? happened? Yes, in really? May of 2021, it, what, that, was hap that was true really? for the Alpha variant. What, what well, happened? Let me ask you about all the general statements that were made to the American people, not general statements, the way you guys said it. You said, uh, was it our tax dollars, were our tax dollars used in the lab in, in China? Uh, that is something that you would have to speak to NIH about. Our tax dollars were used. Uh, it, it sure looks like it was gain-of-function research. It sure looks like it actually came from the lab, and we've had several agencies, federal agencies, say that's, in fact, where the virus originated. The Biden administration told us that the vaccinated couldn't get it. We know that's not accurate. The, Vi the Biden administration told us the vaccinated couldn't transmit it. They told us mass work, and they told us there was no such thing as natural immunity. That seems to me to be, what, seven different statements that turned out not to be true that we got from this administration. Again, why not just tell the American people the truth? Um, so I would dispute some of what you just said. In October 2021, CDC released a scientific brief highlighting all of the science that was out there on infection-induced immunity. And there, I, I don't know the long list that you, I don't remember all the long list, but there are numerous areas where we have provided science um, and the science review to, to provide data to the American people as soon as we had it. I actually think what happened is you actually tried to be honest with the American people and the Biden administration shot you down. Do you remember when you said this in February? This is before you made these statements, which I think are not, uh, not being square with the American people. You said vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools. Did you make that statement? Uh, something to that effect. I can't exactly say the quote, but yeah. Vaccinations of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools. I think you made that statement on February 3rd. Um, do, you, do you stand by that statement? Um, at the time, yeah. I, that we, we had an, uh, a week later or 10 days later, we had an operational guidance that demonstrated layered mitigation strategies and that you could safely reopen were you speaking as Were you speaking as Dr. Walensky or were you speaking as Dr. Walensky, head of the CDC? Um, I have said that while I've been in front of Congress and the media um, and press conferences, I, during my tenure as CDC director, I've been speaking as the CDC director. But that's not what the White House said, right? Uh, Jen Zaki said, Dr. Walensky spoke to this in her personal capacity. Do you remember that statement? I do. Uh, who's right? Uh, you Jen Zaki or you? 
Well, I will tell you that I was speaking in my my um, looks role to me, as the CDC looks director. To me, looks to me like what happened is in February, you said, I'm going to be honest with the American people. I'm going to give it to them straight. Vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely opening schools, and the Biden administration hung you out to dry. They said, nope, she ain't talking for us. She ain't talking as the head of the CDC. She's talking as Dr. Walensky. And then a month later, you said, well, you know what? I better not be totally honest with the American people. So I'm going to say vaccinated people do not carry the virus and they don't get sick. And everyone understands, like, wow, I know someone who's been vaccinated and they've gotten sick afterwards. I think what happened is you try to be honest and they said no. And then you said, well, I'm going to have to hedge a little bit. I'm going to have to give the American people misleading statements from the head of the CDC. You were speaking as head of the CDC in both situations, right? I have said I've been speaking as the head of the CDC. All the time? Yeah. Well, it would have been nice if you'd have just been honest and straightforward with the American people every single time throughout this, uh, throughout this virus. With that, I yield back. I have stood by my commitment to tell the American people what I know when I know it. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. What we're doing in this whole series of programs is trying to show you that all of our lives are being impacted to the rich and powerful, to the oligarchs and those that support them, to the technocrats and those willing to do their bidding as lobbyists and, commi and commissioned individuals before government committees, no bid contracts. They're doing great, and they'll continue to do great. What about the other parts of this country and around the world? Virtually everything is being challenged. Without being apocalyptic but being honest, I want to show you how interconnected all of these events are. Example, the three committee hearings you just saw, I'll give you, just take it down. For example, who was behind the effort to try to have Martin Luther King assassinate himself? The FBI. Was that department held accountable? Anyone held accountable that suggested that he was going to be blackmailed because Martin Luther King was brilliant, courageous, and flawed? But so was Gandhi, brilliant, courageous, and flawed. And so has everyone who's ever lived, been brilliant at different times, who stood out and made, uh, made exceptional statements that enlightened us, or at least gave us the chance to be enlightened if we chose to be. But uh, Martin Luther King had affairs around the country. The FBI knew this. They knew where, when, how often, who with. And they were going to put that out unless he committed suicide. Never a word about it. And the, and the FBI participating in Martin Luther King's assassination, as are some race hustlers today still alive, that we broke the story when uh, Mr. Pepper on this program challenged them. Hey, if I'm not honest, if I'm not accurate, he said, sue me for libel or statements slander. No one did because he was telling the truth. Very popular people that you all know. And yet, one of the biggest race hustlers was an FBI informant. Has that ever come up? Anyone ever challenged him? No. So what we have is we have an FBI that has a long sordid history of being at the very top, policymaking based upon ideologies that are counter to their mission. There's no way to reform that. You have to simply start over. Same way you could shut down half the government and have it function better if you had normal, every, everyday, everyday people who are giving their input. But we, the people, 
never are allowed to have an input. Why is that important? Because there's Lewinsky as an example saying, well, at the time we believed, in point of fact, that is not true. At the very beginning of this entire fiasco, the largest medical fraud, the largest fraud in history, with the worst consequences, millions dead, tens of millions injured, and hundreds of millions adversely affected, and they're still doing it. She should have known that there was there were flaws in all of the initial studies. She had access to that data. She had meetings with the manufacturers. She had meetings with the top of the FDA. All of the people that were advisors except two, and they quit because they wouldn't go along with this fraud, showed that this should never have been released on the market. It meant none of the precautionary principle of first do no harm. And yet, she was the one advocating it. After it was shown that there were healthy therapies that could keep people alive, proven by mainstream pro-vaccine doctors, they allowed these doctors to be ridiculed on social media, hence the social media platforms that the first one was talking about, that any government agency, and all of them participated, would call up someone at, uh, at Google or Facebook and uh, say, we want this person attacked, we don't want their information out, and we want this information promoted. So you, you got false information coming from all your social media, and honest information was attacked as being disinformation or fraudulent information. That's a double negative. And that's one of the reasons I believe that a lot of people felt confident in doing the vaccine and the medications or the protocols. Because had they known the truth from the beginning, and the truth was there from the beginning, but it took lawsuits to pry open those uh, emails, to pry open all the information that showed that the people, the cabal running this whole criminal organization, knew everything. So she knew everything. So did, what did we hear? What did Rachel Maddow say repeatedly? What the President of the United States say repeatedly? If you take the vaccines, you will not get infected, you will not get sick, you will not go to the hospital, you will not die. You cannot infect other people. All that was lies. And the evidence is there at that time to prove it. It will be 100% effective. No, the 95% effective, the 90%, 80 In point of fact, it was only effective for a few months, making it worthless. Because the dangers from the vaccine far outweighed by a huge margin, any benefit from them. And whole groups of people should never have had the vaccine. But they knew it. You see, they knew what was happening, but they also knew they could control Rachel Maddow's show and all other networks because they were a cabal. And who was behind? Who actually owns MMCBC and CBS? And who owns all the media? BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and other groups. They have controlling share of stock. Who controls the stock controls the board. Who controls the board controls the policy. And so therefore, a name you will never hear, a person you will never see, controls trillions, 10 to $20 trillion in assets. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who don't think about these things because you can't be bothered, uh, well, heads up, you're about to get your ass kicked big time. Why? Oh, it was just announced this morning, though you won't hear about it, that hundreds of billions of dollars of your 
uh, savings accounts were invested by these same companies in China. I see. What could possibly go wrong there? Making China an enemy? And China's just said that they're going to unify politically and peacefully with, um, uh, with its neighbor that they believe is a part of China, Taiwan. I see. But we've said if they invade Taiwan or if they take over Taiwan, we will have to go to war with them. Now, between China and Russia, just those two countries, they control the vast majority of the world's natural resources. We don't. And they have long-term contracts with countries that have minerals that we, they need in order to make computers and airplane parts and satellite dishes. And we don't. They've been doing this for a long time. And you're going to pick a fight with them. A fight that they could turn off sending any product that we need for our manufactured products that are manufactured there. Think of that. You're taking the most two powerful natural resource countries in the world and you're picking a fight with them. How do you think that's going to turn out when they can simply, they have not yet used once their cybersecurity apparatuses. They have not said, we're no longer going to manufacture these products. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to allow you to manufacture because we control 90% of the world's precious minerals. And you need those minerals in order to manufacture everything that we consider quality of life uh, products. You see, no one's thinking deep enough, but the people that control this don't care. They control you. So just remember this, coming up. So the social network should never be trusted. Government agencies should never be trusted. They shouldn't even exist. They should have different parts. Now they're falling apart. So everything is falling. I'm going to take you this last clip and I'm going to pay it. You know what? I'm, I'm looking at the clock and what I'm going to do instead is this. Now I will redress what I consider wrong with what they're saying on tomorrow's show because I'm not going to have time now. But I have a whole lot of good scholarship showing that they're absolutely positively wrong and what they're saying about the environment. But here is a, here's a clip worth listening to, and a few things they say are actually accurate. And uh, so let's go to Brett Weinstein, on what he says is, I can't overstate how dire this is, meaning the state of the world, the future of our lives. He said it could all come to an end, and not in the far future, because of what's happening now with the collapse of all of our institutions, people's beliefs, because now that the people have pulled the curtain back and see the truth, they're not believing all this, and therefore they're going to say no the next time. Well, you got to get this jab. The World Health Organization has a treaty America signed because we're idiots and low-life degenerates at the policymaking level. God, is there anyone in Washington, D.C. left with any integrity at all? The answer is no. So it's coming at you whether you like it or not, and the trouble is most people don't care some do, and you're the only ones who are going to fight back on this. Let's go to the clip, and you'll see why you should be really concerned, and not just about bean sprouts and applesauce, but about the fact you're not going to have any freedoms to do anything, even if you wanted to, if these things go through.
Now the clip. All right, Brett Weinstein. Last we did this, we were in London at the ARC conference about a month or five weeks ago or so, and we agreed to do it again. So here we are, and you're, you're in a suit this time. I've never seen you this professional. I don't think I've ever seen you wearing a tie. Are you going into a new line of work? What's going on here? Well, Dave, we are at war, and I think it's incumbent on us to dress appropriately. <laughs> we are at war at some level, I think, sort of across the board. We're at war with our institutions. With, we're at war with our sense-making apparatus. We seem to be politically at war with everybody. I guess, why don't we just start there? What, what is on your mind the most at this very moment? Well, I am concerned that we are in a kind of war that none of us have seen previously, and that this is a war that actually must be won. That were we to fail to win the war to, I don't even think defending the West is possible at this point, but to rekindle it from what remains, if we lose that war, then where we're going, I think is unsurvivable for uh, the, the species, really. And, you know, I wish, I wish there was more nuance about it, but that is, that is how it looks to me. All right, so let's do the black pill first. So what is the black pill? Where is it that you see us going that if we don't rekindle, we are going to end up at? What does that place look like to you? Um, as we may have talked about in London, the, there are really two bases on which you could run a civilization. One of them involves uh, just simply narrowly trying to advance your genes into the future at the expense of other people's genes. And that looks like lineages battling with each other. Sometimes it's genocide, sometimes it's war, sometimes it's more cryptic than that, but it really is, uh, it is about what we have come to call race. And then there is... What That's is, sort of the battles of the old days in some respects. Yes, that was, that was all there was for yeah. a very long time. And in fact, that is the, the crucible that shaped our species. And it happens that in more recent history, we've discovered a better way, and that involves putting aside lineage-level concerns and collaborating with people who are in a position to be good collaborators. Really, that idea has to take over the whole world. That is humanity's future if we're to have one. And unfortunately, the, I think what has happened is that what allowed a civilization based on reciprocity to thrive was uh, a commitment to the consent of the governed. And the problem is for the rent-seeking elites that have, that have hoarded so much power, the idea of the consent of the governed is very frightening because it can take power away from them at any moment and ward it to somebody else. And, you know, that is indeed a frightening prospect, but they've conspired against it. And what is going to happen is that that beautiful system, which, you know, we never completed, but the system that was being erected in the West, uh, when it collapses, it's going to return us to that lineage against lineage conflict um, because that is the more fundamental, more stable state. And unfortunately, if the world returns to that mode with present level of technology and weaponry, we aren't going to just get through it and 100 years from now emerge to rediscover what we once knew. I really don't think we'll be here. All right, now everyone watching this knows that I'm not gonna let you just black pill us the whole time. And I know that that's not your intention and yeah. actually your life's work is to, to not do that at all. But just to give the devil his due and do as much of what you just discussed as we can. So would you say it's something like we've had, you know, 
250 plus years of the Enlightenment that got us past much of the tribal stuff, and now we're we're just at the end of it. Does do, does this feel inevitable where we're at at the moment? Especially if you look at what's happened, you know, since October seventh, where we're now seeing a new version of tribalism burst forth. Does it seem like the obvious end of Enlightenment liberalism? Unfortunately, something that guys like you and I tried to defend very hard before it was cool, I guess. Right, and while there was still m more Some opportunities, yeah. it's now later, unfortunately, yeah. in, in that uh, in that history, but. I think it was not inevitable, but in order to avoid it, we needed to recognize what we had and not delude ourselves about how complete the job had been. In other words, recognizing that we had effectively discovered the, the broad structure that we needed to live by and had never fully achieved it. Right? Obviously, the founders of the American experiment simultaneously understood that nobody needed to be given advantage over anybody else, or it was essential that they not have advantage over anybody else. At the same time, they preserved slavery. So mm -hmm. it was never perfect. It was, at best, a prototype. But we had to recognize what that prototype implied about what kind of world we could have, and then we needed to defend it with everything we had. We needed to defend it, and we needed to... I don't even want to say complete it because that that implies that you're going to get there. And right, and really there's get, no there there. You're going of. to approach it, yeah. right? And you're going to get to a place where the gap between the system you have and the system that you're trying that you're shooting for is so small it's it's not worth messing anything up over. What do you think the closest we've ever got to that was? Like to, I always say on the show now, if we could just reverse it to 1995, we're probably probably pretty good. Well, yes and no. I think 1995 is not a bad estimate of the closest we got, right? And, and just as a proxy for it. We want to say goodbye to BAI, and we'll continue to top the hour on PRN.Live. ...term mattered was probably at a low ebb at that point. Yeah. It didn't matter at the level of zero. It mattered, right? And certain races mattered more than others. But... Everybody understood, all of the decent people understood that it was desirable to have a world in which everybody had access to the market, nobody was barred because of where they came from. And we have now lost touch with that, obviously. We've, we've embraced the idea that nothing matters more. And of course that is going to produce uh, a revival of all of the ancient rivalries and a bunch of new ones. And it just doesn't look survivable. And what's more, I think, if you could just simply teleport everybody for a couple of days into the future that they are toying with delivering us all to, they would recognize instantly that the loss that they were, that they were contemplating was just unthinkable. What if you could teleport the other way? So what if we could teleport to 1995, assuming it's a roughly, it's not the exact year, but ballparking, that things were better, what would you tell the people of 1995 you're supposed to do in the face of this? Because that's what I keep coming back to. A bunch of us were screaming about this. Clearly that wasn't enough. Yep. So what would you tell the people of 30 years ago? How are you gonna fix this? That is an extremely difficult thought problem. And in fact, I fear that the answer is short of, by the way, I'm from the future. I know you're not going to believe that, but if you can get over that one thing, if I can establish that one thing for you, then I've got a message about what's about to happen and what you have to do to prevent it and why it matters, right? 
that you could do. But if there's no way to convey, hey, actually, I've seen where this goes, and it's not good. Right, so you then, need Marty telling Doc that he fell off the toilet to figure out the flux <laughs> capacitor. But short of that, we're kind of screwed. I think so, because I know, you know, actually, it's funny. Heather and I have a little uh, just sort of private thought experiment, you know. Because we knew each other in high school, I'm often saying to her, don't you wish that we could uh, just tell our high school selves about the present and <laughs> what would they say, right? And the answer is, it's not plausible. Yeah. The idea that we would get here is, is unimaginable. And I think people, I don't want to say, would rightly reject the message because it would sound too preposterous. But of course it would. I mean, we're fighting about whether men can become women, whether, you know, pedophilia is a sexual orientation that you can do nothing about. And we should be tolerant of whether two plus two really equals four. I mean, literally, there is nothing There's left that we can agree on. Nothing. So, okay, so short of being able to prove that you were from the future, is there anything in retrospect that we could have done? Again, that's the thing that I still seem to be hung up on. Is this all inevitable, that the system was going to collapse, the algorithms were going to grapple hold of us, the... the uh, the rent seekers, as you're talking about, and the elite, like all of it was inevitably going to get us to this civilizational moment. Well, there are a couple things that go into it which were probably necessary ingredients. And so maybe if you could prevent one of them, you'd, you'd be somewhere better. And I, the two that come to mind most directly, um, I think there was a terrible misstep with atheism. And... What it did was it unhooked a set of protections, some of which really were no longer necessary. Okay, we'll continue with this tomorrow because the most interesting part of his discussion of why he's seeing so much of society collapse, as he will explain it, and I would agree with that, is we're reverting back to tribalism. In fact, it is going to be the inevitable outcome when the vast majority of people realize that the small minority that have all the power and the corporations they control, the funding agencies they control, your pension funds they control, they control the politicians, they control the state legislatures, they control the body politic. And people finally say, wow, you are not in any way, shape, or form making my life better, you're making it worse. And so you're gonna see everywhere around the world. It's happening now in Germany um, with the German people saying, my God, we're now living like a third world country here. People are starving to death. People are freezing to death in Germany. This would never have been thought of before the Nordstrom pipeline was blown up. And of course, I'm assuming that the top officials in Germany knew that that was a plan to break free from dominance of their gas from uh, Russia. Well, how'd that work out? Then again, how did the war in Ukraine work out? Great for the people to benefit from it. And who benefits from it? The arms manufacturers. And who owns the arms manufacturers? Who controls it? Do you think the CEO and the president and the board of directors control it? Nope. It's the company that has the majority of stock. And those are the companies that you know nothing about up to this point, except their names. Well, what do you think happens when the majority of people finally get kicked in the teeth enough they start to say, you're not going to kick me again. And that's what we see happening now. You see it in Israel. You see it in the public, mainly the younger public, saying enough. 
There should be a two-state solution. There shouldn't, we shouldn't allow this to continue. You see it in the high prices of food. You see it in the corruption of the FBI and the CIA and the body politic in the White House. And it doesn't matter who's in office, you see it. It's only now a few courageous and honest politicians, and there are a few, are coming forward, like you heard today, and exposing it. But you wouldn't have seen that conversation on MSNBC. You wouldn't have heard that on NPR or PBS because they don't want you to think that there's anything but a shining example of purity and uh, public service in all these people, and they're just rotten to the core. We'll continue tomorrow, and then I'll give you my rebuttal to them and a commentary tomorrow that will get people to think about why we've become a nation addicted to things that historically we were not addicted to and today control our lives. That's tomorrow. Have a nice day, everyone.